This is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings, with two Bs on Snapchat, and brought to you by the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. Always some fantastic tweets from Jason. And with every week that goes by, we're getting closer to Sasta Annual 2018, and Jason and I would love to see you there. So much so that Jason's kindly put on Drinks with Harry. Essentially, head over to drinkswithharry.com to purchase your tickets or enter it as a promo code, and you'll not only get 10% off your ticket price, but also mojitos with me. My word, that will be fun. However, to the show today, and I'm very excited to welcome Rajiv Batra to the hot seat today. Now, Rajiv is a partner at Mayfield, the firm that dates back to 1969 and has an incredible 14 early stage funds altogether. At Mayfield, Rajiv has made investments in the likes of Crunchbase, Smart Recruiters, Marketo, Service Max, and many more fantastic companies. And prior to Mayfield, Rajiv was at Mobius Venture Capital and Austin Ventures. But before making the move into VC, Rajiv also spent time on the operational side of the table as an entrepreneur and executive, with three of the companies he worked with going public and later being acquired, including the very notable Siebel Systems. I'd also want to say a big thank you to two prior 20-minute VC guests, Tim Chang and Rishi Garg, for the intro to Rajiv today, without which this episode would not have been possible. However, before we move into the show today, if you're a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, whether it be hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining that top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Now, Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want, and you also get this incredible continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees get feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox, and WePay trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to Lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's Lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there, and it's thanks to my friends at WePay that I can introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, BirdEase, the complete management and promotion platform for golf outings and events. It's got the full bag of features, from instant tournament website development, to email marketing, to flexible online registration with payment processing, allowing you, the organiser, to not only save time, but increase outcomes year after year. And you can learn more at birdeasepro.com. And to learn how you can hit a hole-in-one with revenue from integrated payments, like BirdEase did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. So again, check it out at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. But enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand the mic over to Rajiv Batra, partner at Mayfield. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Rajiv, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, but I'd love to start today with a little bit about you and how you made your way into the world of enterprise SaaS and then also came to be a VC with Mayfield today. I grew up all over the world. My father was a diplomat. So my sort of life journey was constantly getting uprooted every few years and having to adjust, learn to live with new people, often not speaking the language, always being the outsider. So what I found was the only way to really fit in or have a normal life was to really get along with people. And the core of that was empathy. It was uh, constantly putting myself in the shoes of others and understanding why is it that they react the way they do towards me. And that learning was really brought home when I lived in Islamabad, Pakistan. I'm from India. My father was posted to Pakistan when I was in high school, and that was terrifying for me. But that was the ultimate test of uh, understanding this human empathy. And I made some of my best friends when I lived there. And the reason why that is such a cornerstone to my journey into venture capital is it's about working with people. It's about working with entrepreneurs who are looking to make an impact on the world. And the only way I believe you can make true 
true positive impact on the world is to really connect with people, to put yourself in their shoes and understand what their problems really are. And I think great entrepreneurs do that. And I did work as an entrepreneur for a number of years, starting with my first internship during college years, which is where I got the entrepreneurial bug. When I was in business school, I was thinking about what I was going to do next. And this was at the height of the dot-com bubble. A number of venture firms were recruiting people with technical and entrepreneurial backgrounds like myself for associate roles. And I was very reluctant to join a venture firm because my view was that you should be a very successful entrepreneur who's been a CEO, taken a company public, et cetera, et cetera. That's the only way you can really add value to the journey of another entrepreneur. And so I decided to do another startup while I was in business school. That one actually failed and did not work out. So I had a number of startups I was part of. Some were successful, some were not so successful. And in 2001, as the dot-com bubble was crashing, I finally said, what is it that I really want to do? I took a step back and I retested this notion that venture capitalists have to be extremely experienced, else they cannot be venture capitalists. And I met with a lot of them and decided that I should give it a shot. What was the catalyst in your transition from that thinking to actually that it was possible? Yeah. So what happened was I met a number of VCs and a lot of them you have interviewed up and down Sand Hill Road and elsewhere. And what I found was that there was no real background that was prototypical, right? You had prior operators, you had people who had right out of college sort of done consulting or banking or had worked only for a couple of years. And this is an apprenticeship trade and it is very, very different from anything else you would do. So just like any other apprenticeship trade, it has a learning curve and you try to learn from the best and you learn from osmosis and spending time with entrepreneurs doing this. And so I sort of removed that myth out of my head. And then a good friend of mine also said, look, if there's something you really want to do and you think that that's what you want to do, the only way you're going to find out is by trying it. If, if this is something that is like a trade and takes a long time to learn, you might as well get started as soon as you can. And those few sort of points really hit it home for me. And of course, now the tables were turned, no venture firm was hiring, and I was desperately out there looking for an opportunity. And I did get lucky with a couple opportunities. And I ended up at Austin Ventures in Austin, Texas. And I worked directly for one of the founders. And it was not a very active year for investments in 2001, but I learned a lot. And in 2002, I proceeded to actually move to the, uh, to Silicon Valley because I'd always wanted to be here. And I worked with Mobius SoftBank Venture Capital, where Heidi Roizen, who was one of the most connected people in the Valley, took me on. And I was there for a number of years where I met with Naveen Chada, who had been backed by Mobius a number of times before as an entrepreneur. And he had moved to Mayfield to be part of the new leadership team here in 2006. So I joined the firm in 2007. And that was my sort of journey in venture capital. It was this process of learning about myself and, and rediscovering the fact that this is where I sort of belong. And I've always believed in service and giving to others. And being a venture capitalist, an early stage venture capitalist is all about being in service to an entrepreneur. This is exactly the right thing for me. And I'm really, really lucky and privileged to do this in that our LPs give us money to spend time with some incredible people and have the opportunity to serve them. You've mentioned to me before about the discovery and, and finding your own personal product market fit in terms of finding venture. So tell me about your philosophy on complex SaaS apps then and figuring out, as you said, what kind of animal you are. So what do you mean yeah. by this? What, what kind of animal you are? So I like using metaphors in life a lot. It kind of helps simplify the point. So we often hear at Mayfield say that startups don't die of starvation, they die of indigestion. So another way of saying focus. And in anything that you do in life, you have to be incredibly focused because if you're not, 
not, you're not going to be 10 to 100 times better than the alternative. And that's what you have to be when you're a startup technology company. And so it's pretty universal. And when it comes to SaaS, if you have a complex piece of software, it is very difficult to, for example, just go ahead and say, look, I'm going to do a bunch of inbound marketing and write a bunch of content. People are going to figure it out and they're just going to come and give me lots and lots of money for my product. If you have a utility-like piece of technology, let's say a payment processing technology or something that's just very, very easy for a customer to understand or they have a burning need and they can self-serve themselves, that type of company can employ marketing, for example, to get access to its customers. And the product takes a certain shape and form. The service model takes a certain form and shape versus enterprise software, which is more complex to explain to people, help them understand the value of it. There are lots of stakeholders. The go-to-market model fundamentally is different. The service model is very different. And so a lot of times I find that entrepreneurs struggle with this because on the one hand, they want maybe the characteristics of uh, an enterprise SaaS company with large deal sizes and low churn rate, but they don't want to pay a huge CAC, for example. They want it to be easy to get these customers. They want short sales cycles. Well, you know, you can't have all of that. And the other thing that entrepreneurs a lot of times struggle with is they want to serve the whole market because they're afraid if they don't, they're going to get cannibalized or competed out, et cetera, et cetera. So at the end of the day, you can't be all things to all people. And you have to figure out who you are, what your technology does, what your product does, what do your customers want, and really find that product market fit, really figure out what market segment you are best suited for, and really become the best at it better than anybody else by an order of magnitude. And that's what it takes to win. And that's what I mean about figuring out what type of animal you are. If you're an elephant, be an elephant and be the best elephant you can be. If you're a turtle, be the best turtle in the world and be the best at it because you get rewarded for doing that. You don't get rewarded for being sort of in between confused or trying to become something else that you're not. You mentioned that uh, wanting to be something that you're not and wanting to have shorter sales cycles or longer sales cycles or higher ACVs, lower ACVs. One I'm always interested by is in terms of ACVs and specifically inside sales teams and the relation between the two. So I'm intrigued. What ACV do you think justifies an inside sales team? I think this is a shifting target. If you asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have said it's very hard to sell over the phone, anything beyond 510K. And you know, that barrier has been broken over and over as you've had better go-to-market technology and innovations there. And also the receptivity of uh, the customers, right? They've been trained to now be able to make purchases because A, they're doing their own research. And so if they're in market, they're become more and more receptive to an inside sales effort as opposed to an in-person effort. So I think that's continued to move up. And, you know, again, call it 20 years ago, I think there were like five, six, seven, 10,000 companies that really even benefited from enterprise software and technology. Today, it's hundreds of thousands of companies, and I think it'll be millions eventually. So the bar keeps rising. I still think that it, it depends on other factors and, and what you're doing. But unless you have a deal size or an ACV of, call it in the $15,000, $20,000 range, it becomes pretty difficult to build a productive inside sales motion unless somehow you've gotten your targeting so well and your product is so good that it just never turns. You know, you can kind of break that floor. And I always say that you have to find that floor and then build 
build your business model above that floor to really build a, a good sustainable company. No, I, I do agree. You said about product market fit there and sticking. You said product market fit is elusive and a high growth companies never achieve it often. I'm intrigued then. How can early product market fit be misleading, do you think? Yeah, so I think early product market fit can be misleading in that it all depends, again, on understanding what problem you're solving and for whom. And, you know, often you see companies, they'll say, I'm a YC company, I'm selling to other YC customers or YC companies, or I'm I'm solving the problem of Silicon Valley tech companies. This happens, by the way, in recruiting a lot, because in Silicon Valley, we have a lot of problems with recruiting, right? It's uh, it's tough. But if you solve the problems of a certain audience and you get traction, doesn't mean that that traction is going to translate to the rest of the market. So figuring out what your market is, what's the scope and size of that market, and what is the product that makes sense, and what's the service model, and the go-to-market, it's all packaged together. And why is it misleading early on? Well, I I think sometimes companies get really, really fast revenue traction, and sometimes they can't explain why that is happening. They can't understand what the actual true utility and use of the product is and what value it's driving for the end customer. And lo and behold, a year ago, goes by and or a year and a half goes by and they're not getting any expansions, they're getting churn and nobody wants it or customers go out of business. And so this early revenue traction, in my mind, in, in, a, in a company like that is a curse because you take that and you go raise a bunch of money and, and suddenly you are in, in a lot of trouble. And I think there's a lot more recognition of that now, but I still see companies making that mistake. I grew up in the classic enterprise software era where you always sort of said, look, it's all about go-to-market, superior sales it always wins. And technology products important, but not as important. I've kind of shifted my view over the years saying they're kind of both important. I mean, yeah, it's an obvious statement to say that, especially in SaaS companies, to really understand how those two things are connected at a very, very visceral and fundamental level is so critical. And uh, a lot of companies, for example, think about customer success and how to make customers successful and customer experience as an afterthought will bolt it on once we're five or $10 million or $20 million. That's a principle that has to be weak into the DNA of the company from day one. When salespeople sell, they have to understand what value it drives, and they have to be obsessed with driving that value early on. Else, you know, you're not going to build a sustainable company. And so the worst thing that can happen is you have a great sales team, you have an okay product, and you don't understand why your customers are using it, why they're even like buying from you. And that's a recipe for disaster for an early stage company. And a lot of founders uh, obviously judge the success of their company and the trajectory that they're on with metrics. You've said before that uh, we've seen seen a metrification of SaaS. Brilliant word there. But I'd love to hear your thoughts around this, the obsession with metrics and whether it's a good or a bad thing to start with. Yeah, so look, you know, it's a great, you know, lingua franca. It's, it's a great way to have a common vernacular for SaaS. And I, you know, really appreciate uh, everybody out there who's worked on that, you know, the guys at Bessemer and Mamoon and a number of other folks over the years. And I think the challenge with that early metrification, again, is it's, it, yes, it's a common way to sort of say, hey, this is where I am. Am I ready? Am I not? ready. But, you know, I always say it's not the what of the numbers, it's the why of the numbers, right? It's why are your metrics where they are? Do you really at a fundamental level understand them and you know how to affect them and which ones really, really matter? And so there are great companies that may have terrible metrics early on because they haven't found a product market fit, but they have incredibly strong product value proposition. And it may take them a year or two to really start posting some interesting numbers. But, you know, if they are forced into this whole notion of, well, you got to have this and this metrics, they may do some odd things, you know? And look, I've been involved with companies where, if you don't mind, I'll take an example. We were involved with a company called ServiceMax that 
recently was acquired by GE. It's a field service company. When we got involved with that company, that company was barely doing 120, 130K in MRR. Its business model was, at the time, 35% license and 65% services, and it had 18% gross margin. That was a terrible economics. And, and the CAC was completely upside down, but that company had phenomenally deep domain expertise. They really understood the market, and they knew where they were going, and they were starting to have some very interesting early customers that were massive. And the reason for the large service mix was it takes a long time to implement a good service, a field service implementation. It's like ERP. It can take a year or longer. But once it's been installed and once the value is being driven through the system, value being delivered to these customers was phenomenal. And they'll virtually never, ever leave. They can't. It's like ERP is very difficult to replace it. And the business model flips completely on its head and gets rolled out from 50 users to hundreds or thousands of users. So the economics long-term are phenomenal. And the margin mix shifts and everything changes. But if you just looked at that company, there's a lot of things have to go right. Or you got to have some real key insight into that space, into that market to say, look, I'm going to make a bet. And guess what? That worked out quite all right for, for the ServiceMax founders and the team and, and their customers uh, in terms of what they ended up building. I would love to hear, speaking of the metrics, sir, if there are, if there are certain ones, if you just do 80-20 analysis on it, which one do you hone in on? And if there's kind of a, a kind of rank table for them for you? Yeah. So I think the importance of these metrics does change in my mind over time. So the number one metric that I try to look for is retention rate. And yes, there's a lot of conversation around quick ratios and contraction, expansion, etc. But fundamentally, I look for gross retention rate. So retention to me is the number one metric early on in a company's life because it speaks to whether what you have created is important enough for that customer to keep paying for it and coming back. And for sure, right, early on before you've had a renewal cycle, etc., sometimes you just don't have sufficient renewal data. But what are certain proxy measures, if you will, your North Star metrics or other things that you should be understanding that describe that value that you're driving to your customer? You should understand those. But fundamentally, from a SaaS metric standpoint, to me, that retention number is the fundamental number that people have to understand. Because if you don't understand that, then you don't understand what is your ultimate market, what's the go-to-market. You know, there's no point in figuring out CAC if your retention, let's say, is 60%. So if, if you don't have that figured out, it's very difficult to build a go-to-market model. It's hard to figure out your CAC, your payback. All, all the other metrics are follow-on metrics to me once you know how sticky your product is. Sure. To me, the other important metric is the gross margin. Companies have to try and understand what their long-term gross margin profile should be. If your product requires a lot of services to stand up, for example, you have to really think about the implications of that. And fundamentally, gross margins are a measure of value that you're adding to the raw material, if you will. And I know in software, it's very easy to sort of say, oh, I'm a high gross margin business, but that's not always the case. And again, this is connected to understanding what kind of animal you are. You know, uh, If you have to provide a lot of services to make your customers successful, well, acknowledge that and do that. And yes, try to improve on that over time. But understanding that becomes really, really critical because low gross margin businesses fundamentally can't long-term invest in, it's an obvious statement, but can't invest in product and growth as aggressively as a high gross margin business can. And the compensatory factor for most technology companies and startups has been venture capital. But at some point, you know, you have to stand on your own two legs. And I think in SaaS, especially for too long, I think companies have sort of gotten away with the convergence point of when their business models actually converge to being healthy and profitable longer term. But I think SaaS, 
now has been a trend for a good 18 years, but I think time's coming that entrepreneurs will have to build companies that are also uh, have good, strong business models, and that all starts with gross margin. So having said all this, obviously, once companies get further along, retention is important, but then you start focusing on CAC and payback and all those other measures. But I think at the start, you have to get this right. No, I agree. I think retention is the foundations. But I'd love to move into a quick fire that we're calling Rajiv 60 seconds faster. So I say a short statement, and then you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? All right, let's do it. So let's say enterprise investing is spreadsheet investing. Too harsh or fair? Absolutely not. Enterprise investing is not spreadsheet investing. Again, I think you can't just put numbers in there and and figure it out. All this stuff is a shifting target. And uh, Harry, I don't know. I mean, I've never found early stage venture investing to be spreadsheet investing (laughs) across the board. (laughs) I'll tell you, that's the honest That's the honest answer. (laughs) It's the honest, most human answer is the best. I think think you're quite right. I get posited a lot. Um, What about feeding yourself last at Mayfield and why that's important? Yeah, this is a very, very important thing. So Mayfield is one of the only few venture firms, I believe either the only one or one of two, that works on a budget. So what does that mean? You know, you obviously know most venture firms charge a management fee and carry, and we are entitled to our management fee and its market, etc. But despite that, we run the firm on a budget. And we don't take more than that to, uh, you know, beyond what we need to run our business. And what that means is that none of us are getting wealthy on management fees. It's all based on how our performance will be. And that creates a huge amount of alignment with our limited partners. And interestingly enough, it creates a tremendous amount of alignment with our entrepreneurs as well, because it forces us and makes us work for the entrepreneur and be in the service business we are, because we're fundamentally relying on their success. And so we will do what we need to do to make that happen. And so the way we sort of see it is entrepreneurs are successful in creating an amazing business or company that adds value to their customers and society. It then creates value as a result of that creates value for their employees and themselves. And as a result of that, it creates value for our limited partners and everybody they're investing their money for. And once that entire thing works out, then it rewards us uh, in the end. And we think that's a fundamentally aligning mechanism that's allowed Mayfield to be around since 1969, over four different generational partners. Looking for two act opportunities. You've said it before. What do you mean? So the first, I always look for companies where their first product or their first market opportunity in of itself can build a very large business, you know, hundred, few hundred million dollar run rate business, multi-billion dollar market cap opportunity. But there is a very important choke point that that company ends up controlling. Either it becomes a new system of engagement or a system of record. They control something really, really critical and fundamental in the enterprise that allows them to then go after a much, much bigger opportunity to become a standalone platform company. Most enterprise applications, SaaS companies don't have that opportunity. But I always look for opportunities where their first act, if you will, can still build a very substantial business. But then there's that 0.1% chance, 0.001% chance that they can become the new platform and standard. And, you know, that's what keeps me kind of going every day to dream big. And I'm excited to finish today with the theme of competition. So let's start with the timing. And you said to me before that first to market rarely wins. So why do you think this? Let's start with that. Yeah. So first to market rarely wins. Uh, it's, it's very, very easy these days. And it's always been to start an application software company. And therefore, whenever there is a market opportunity that appears, there are usually tens or 
hundreds of companies that will appear. So time to market advantage is rarely an advantage by the mere act of actually creating the product. You have to get market penetration and you have to get that product market fit. And fundamentally, it's an execution play. And market timing matters, preconditions matter. For example, Marketo could not have come before Salesforce.com. It's just the way the market sort of evolved. And so it's the first company that starts to actually become the leader in the space and really has cracked the problem, both in terms of their product and go-to-market and customer satisfaction, that is usually entitled to win. And we've often seen there are companies that are the fourth, fifth, tenth, fifteenth company in the space, twentieth company in the space that ends up ultimately dominating because they just got all those things right. And those are the ones that we ultimately look for and go after. I, I'm super intrigued, though, particularly in terms of competition and the kind of overratedness yeah. around competition. And do you very much agree with the thesis of rowing your own race with that in mind? Absolutely. And so, look, you have to be aware of the competition, but there's so much obsession over competition. And frankly, at the end of the day, right, you're your own competition. You're your worst enemy if you let yourself be that. And that is true in any endeavor that humans do, right, including ourselves. And so, you know, to me, competition brings about certain attributes in all of us, which is great, you know, survival instinct, all that type of stuff. So competition serves a role. And if competition is doing something innovative that you think can add value to your customers, yeah, you should take that on. But execution is at such a premium. It's such a rarity. And most other companies are just not going to be able to successfully execute. So focus on your own execution, focus on getting your own thing right. And I think champions and great companies, they lead the market. They define the competition. They don't let their competition define the market. And so it's an interesting debate I have with a lot of entrepreneurs. And I'm a big believer that you just, you just have to be maniacally focused on just your own race, as you said. I couldn't agree more. But it's been such a pleasure to have you on. As I said, I heard so many great things from Rishi and Tim, so it really has been wonderful. So thank you so much for joining me today, Rajiv. Thank you, Harry, and uh, it's been it's been a wonderful pleasure, and uh, and good luck to you. So fantastic to have Rajiv on the show there, and as you can tell, I so enjoyed the conversation. I do also want to give a big hand to the whole team at Mayfield. They've been so kind to me, both on the show and personally with my career development, so a big hand to them for that, and I really do appreciate it. And if you'd like to see more from us, then you can follow us on Snapchat at hstebbings to see all things behind the scenes here at Sasta. Likewise, we'd love to see you at Sasta Annual 2018. As I said at the start, you can get that by heading over to drinkswithharry.com or entering the promo code drinkswithharry, and you not only get 10% off, but free mojitos with me, thanks to to the kind bank of Mr. Jason Lemkin. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, if you are a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining that top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want. And you also get this fantastic continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees get feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox, and WePay trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to Lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's Lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there, and it's thanks to my friends at WePay that I can introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, BirdEase, the complete management and promotion platform for golf outings and events. It's the full golf bag of features from instant tournament website development to email marketing, 
marketing to flexible online registration with payment processing, allowing you, the organizer, to not only save time, but increase outcomes year after year. And you can learn more at birdeasepro.com. And to learn how to hit a hole in one, so to speak, with revenue from integrated payments like Birdies did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Get it at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. But from everyone here at Sasta, we so appreciate your support and look very forward to bringing you next week's episode.